Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. On the last episode of Journey, Everest Base Camp. Um, so that's our plane behind us, and it looks like they're currently working frantically to fix the landing gear. So hopefully that's okay. We literally just landed in the most dangerous airport in the world, and uh, yeah, it was a, a great flight. Awesome views of the Himalayas and Mount Everest as well. I can say, hand on heart, that my flight into Lukla was the single most amazing flight of my life. The roar of a tiny plane with such powerful props and a cabin full of a dozen excited people, full of smiles, just made for such a great atmosphere. As our plane roared over the end of the Ramachat runway, it climbed straight towards a mountain before banking away sharply and slicing through a valley, then up into the clouds. When we levelled off, We were still only metres from hills and mountains dotted with Himalayan farms, accessible only by foot. Then to my left, the mighty snow-topped Himalayas stretched across the horizon, beckoning. Nidijan leaned over and pointed out one distant hidden peak. I looked at him and he nodded. Everest. I stared, transfixed. It looked so tiny and yet so far. It seemed impossible that we were about to walk all the way there. No one spoke. It was a humble silence, everyone deep in their own thoughts. The plane swept only metres past the final few mountains. So close, I felt surely I could reach out and touch their rocky sides. Then suddenly we were landing where one moment it was an endless valley. The next, we were touching down and quickly taxiing off with no delay. There were many more people to fly in yet. Lukla is an amazing little settlement, perched on a flat area overlooking the valley at an altitude of 2,860 metres, surrounded by towering 5,000 metre peaks. If I was wondering where I was, then now... There's absolutely no doubt. This is the gateway to the Kumbu region and the world's highest mountain. The nearby sheer mountains passing judgment over all those who dare to enter. The town of Lukla itself runs directly adjacent to the airport and consists of one main cobbled street dotted with bakeries, trekking stores, lodges and cafes. But as we'd been delayed leaving Ramchap, there was no time to waste exploring the town. It was a quick breakfast at a nearby lodge, shorts on, packs on, and just like that, we're off. We've just had a great breakfast, some eggs on toast to get started, and now the adventure begins. The first steps. From Lukla. So we're in Lukla right now, which is an altitude of, what, about 2,800 metres, and then... Today we're walking down slightly to Fugding, 
which is where we'll be staying at our tea room tonight. Uh, anything exciting to expect on the way? Yeti. Yeti, yeah, we are, yeah. we are seeking for Yeti and we are seeking for Snow Leopard. Yeah. We will see today or day after tomorrow or... <laughs> guaranteed. In, in after day. Yeah. yeah, we've been guaranteed Snow Leopard or Yeti. Down the hill, out of Lukla, and gone. The town quickly gives way to dense forest and the constant sounds of streams snaking their way down the mountains to the raging river below. We pass a constant stream of weary-eyed trekkers returning from their many-week sojourn, a hustle in their step as they realise just how close they are to their first showers in a couple weeks. Our itinerary for day one of the trek takes us from Lukla at 2,860 metres and we then actually slowly make our way down to an altitude of 2,650 metres for our first night of the trek, taking us approximately four hours. The track is a surprisingly smooth surface here, with only the odd rock requiring too much thought on foot placement. And that sits just fine with me. I really take the time to take it all in and experience this amazing place. As we make our way through small villages, Sherpa children play on the cobbled streets and steady progressions of mule trains wind their way past us. I make sure to always position myself on the mountainside of the trail. It's one of the most important lessons and first things you're told. It's not uncommon for trekkers to be pushed right off the edge if they find themselves on the wrong side of the trail. And this has proved a deadly mistake for some. Arriving in Fakding was like something out of a Himalayan fairy tale. A quaint village nestled on the edge of the valley above the turquoise blue river. The buildings are well-constructed stone with blue painted features the highlight here. Cobbled streets wind up and through the town, with friendly-looking lodges gently inviting your business. Namaste. Namaste. We book into an impressive two-storey stone lodge, and we're given the keys to our individual rooms, which happen to be outside cabins overlooking the small settlement and valley below. Okay, just got to our first stop and uh, got to our tea house. And I must say, this lodge is very nice. Um, made of um, all wood interior. Um, we've just ordered lunch. My room is fantastic, to be honest. It has a western toilet, shower. Yeah, it's brilliant. Brilliant, nice view out my window, uh, some other, couple other tea houses there, some houses of obviously the locals and then you can hear the river in the background and it's all, just looks like pine forest. Of course that's going to change in the coming days as we increase 
our altitude. But yeah, so right now, I'm just going to get my sweaty, disgusting shirt off and my boots. And we're going to head back in the tea house and have ourselves some lunch. But yeah, a great first day. We had pretty much no sleep last night because we had to get up so early to leave. So it's going to be lunch and a nap. And then we're going to go for a walk uh, just across the river to go check out a monastery. There are some big swing bridges too, I must say. And it's uh, it's a bit daunting when you look down and see it's about a 100 metre drop to the river below. Right, it changed. Lugging my oversized pack into the cabin, I throw it on the bed and flop myself down and just lay for a time. In silence. The sun beams warmly in through the window and I feel so perfectly at ease, really just taking it all in, that I'm here in the Himalayas. After a short time, I head back into the lodge where we order a bite to eat and stomachs full, make our way down the trail and up the other side of the valley towards the monastery. At one point, hugging the side of the trail as a caravan of donkeys carrying LPG bottles make their way past, back down towards Lukla. Heads bowed, in no rush. We pause a moment, waiting for an elderly Sherpa woman to make her way across a long, creaking swing bridge. I look up and ahead and see Fakdeng Monastery peeking out of the clouds far above us, hidden in the mountains and forest. Winding our way up the steep slope, the monastery itself comes into view. And moving slowly but purposefully from building to building, we see the famous Buddhist monks with long, flowing crimson robes. After careful request by our guide Nidijan, we're allowed access to the shrine room, or Gumpa. That's a very good painting, actually. Very detailed. This is a sacred place within the monastery where monks pray, study, meditate, and perform rituals. The room itself is painted wall-to-wall in vivid colour, with a large shrine of Buddha standing floor-to-ceiling at the far end. The day is almost over, and a pair of young monks busy themselves preparing for another day tomorrow. myself next to an intricately carved wooden window, staring out to an endless line of Himalayan peaks, accompanied by the endless soundtrack of the river hundreds of metres below. As we make our way outside and onto a balcony with views you'd only dream of, two young monks no more than ten years old are scooting around playing a game of marbles, which quickly turns into some form of Buddhist wrestling as they discover their newfound attention. Yeah. 
I can't help but sense a feeling of peace and happiness with these kids. There are no iPads or YouTube here. And these kids are doing what kids should. Playing. Outside. Using their imagination. Food for thought. The river seems louder and more ominous than before. As night sets and we make our way back across the swing bridge. Looking down and seeing a raging river hundreds of feet below will take some getting used to. And I'll certainly get plenty of opportunity for that throughout the trek. But for now, it's back to the lodge. For dinner and sleep. It's been a long first day. And despite the excitement of finally being here, I can hear the soft, warm bed calling. I'll need a good sleep tonight. Because tomorrow, the second day of the trek, we'll be making the climb to Namche Bazaar. A significant elevation gain. And one of us will be faced with the harsh reality of how difficult this trek really is. That was a bloody good sleep, <coughs> I've got to say. The blankets are brilliant. Let's see. Curtains open. What a view. Looking back down the, the ranges, it's tree-lined on each side, and the big suspension swing bridge just down from me. Right, now I'm going to get ready, head out to the tea house and um, grab some breakfast before we get into the day. I'm excited. Today we um, move on to Namchi Bazaar, which is apparently hard to believe how amazing it is because it's a, a um, fully-fledged village slash tourist town slash market that's running at 3,500 metres up in the Himalayas. So keen to get into that. But uh, yeah, first things, let's get changed and pack up and uh, get out to the lodge. I'm up early and make my way into the lodge, which is a beautiful open-plan, wooden cabin-style room, reminiscent of ski lodges I've seen in my time in the Canadian mountains. In the centre sits a standalone pot-belly stove, which extends up through the ceiling and allows for 360-degree seating. As it's mid-November, we've caught the end of the trekking season, which means the room is empty, aside from myself and the friendly Sherpa hosts. I'm offered a hot coffee 
and lovingly cradle it next to a seat by the fire. My first sip reminding me of the difference in coffee between Nepal and my home country, New Zealand. It's strong. I'm normally a two-cup man at home, but here I'm a humble one-cupper. For my first breakfast, I order an omelette, and I'm blown away by the quality of the food, both here and on the entire trek. To consider that every single thing on my plate has been carried here either by human porters or on the backs of mules is quite simply mind-blowing. And it always comes with a smile and a laugh. Here, as in most places in the world, you get out what you put in with your human interaction. Whenever visiting a new country, I always, always make the effort to learn as much of the language as possible and speak to locals. Your experience will be that much richer when you engage in a meaningful way. If there's one thing I would say about New Zealanders, and Australians for that matter, is that we tend to have this feature built into us. I always chuckle when I think about a scene from Crocodile Dundee 2, which encapsulates this perfectly. When Mick visits New York and makes conversation with a random pedestrian at the traffic lights. G'day! Mick Dundee from Australia. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I think I'm good. This guy came down for a couple of days. Probably see you around. <coughs> Bye. This always makes me laugh, but it's basically spot on, and the world would be a better place if we all took a page out of Mick Dundee's book. Anyway, I digress. I say goodbye to my newfound friends at Snowland Tea Lodge, telling them that I'll see them on the way back. I'm literally laughing as I recall this, because I guess I've taken a page out of Mick's book without realising. <laughs> we'll see you on the way back. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We'll have lunch. Yeah, yeah. Swinging on my pack, we hit the trail again. With a special vigour today, our bodies and minds eagerly, but somewhat naively, forging ahead at speed. Making our way through the cobbled streets of the tiny settlement of Fakding, we tailgate a pair of unaccompanied local cows who seem to have decided that they'll also make the most of this stunning morning. As they turn off down a side alley, we continue on, the stones crunching under our feet, the sound swallowed by the roar of the Dukosi River below and to our left. Today is set to be the first difficult day of the trek. An initial period of rolling trail will eventually give way to the steep climb to the village of Namche Bazaar. At this point, the trail is about two metres wide and tightly hugs the never-ending mountain range as it winds its way up the Kumbu Valley. For the most part, the trail is far better than I'd expected, with cobbled sections and well-defined steps up some of the steeper spots. Tall alpine trees reach to the sky dotted only with a few clouds as they amble their way behind yet another majestic snowy peak, a seemingly unfathomable distance ahead. We're making good time, 
being a small group of only three and all having a good level of fitness. The only breaks being the occasional log jam of people or animals. We pause at one in particular. A waterfall cascades over the edge of a cliff and into a small pool. A caravan of mules are taking their time navigating some of the steeper sections of stairs, coaxed on from the rear by their frustrated young Sherpa shepherd. All to the sounds of popular Hindu pop music blaring from his Bluetooth speaker hidden away in his small pack. Maybe not so far from technology after all. Time and again, we cross progressively higher and longer swing bridges, each only a few feet wide and essentially made of a few single lengths of steel rope with a steel mesh walkway hanging beneath. The raging river hundreds of feet below, visible directly between your feet, giving the feeling of almost walking on air. There's a certain oh shit moment when you cross your first of these high swing bridges. Something in our brains trying to quickly advise us that this is probably not a good idea. For the best part of the first half of the day, the trail seems to follow the same formula. Beautiful rolling hike through alpine trees, a river crossing via swing bridge, followed by a small settlement of stone houses, seemingly plucked from another time. Eventually, we climb through another village to find what will be one of many checkpoints we'll see throughout the entire trek. This one, however, features a huge, intricately carved archway made up of bright greens, reds and yellows through which the trail passes. Written in large yellow capital letters on the arch, Sagamata National Park, Nepal. Despite the beautiful arch and colour, there's a sense of foreboding that lies beyond this gate. The track slips over a ridge immediately beyond and is flanked by a pair of armed military guards. We join the others waiting in the queue and throw down our packs wherever we can and grab a sip of water while we wait for our guide Nidijan to organise our permits to continue. The world's highest mountain was named after the surveyor Sir George Everest, but it is also known by the Tibetans as Chomolongma, and by the Nepalese as Sagamata, meaning goddess of the sky. For the trivia buffs out there, it's also, in time, been known by a fourth name. Before it was known to be the world's tallest, it had been referred to as only Peak 15. As Nidijan organises the permits with authorities, I make conversation with a lively, older British trekker, and we talk the Cricket World Cup, which was on at the time. And it's during this few minutes of downtime that I start to realise how much more straightforward the administrative part of this trek is going to be with the help of a qualified guide. At the time of my trek, it was possible to trek anywhere in Nepal solo. And there were many that were. But they were faced with extra scrutiny, hassle and time at each of these checkpoints. At the time of me writing this episode, the Nepalese government has just declared that solo trekking is no longer permitted throughout Nepal due to the risks and ultimately costs of the eventual rescues that result. While there are many ways to book guides, 
you'll find that booking directly with a local company will save you a considerable sum. You'll find details of the great small trekking company that I used in the show notes of every episode. And make sure you tell Keshab you heard it from me. Permits firmly in Nidijan's hand, the guards wave us through. I pause for a moment on the other side of the gate, gazing back through. It's a strange feeling, as if I've just passed from one world to another, not knowing yet that I truly had. Finally, I turn and see my companions disappearing down and around the corner. I pan my gaze up, past the roar of the river, and settle on the snowy peaks beyond. I wiggle my pack. One shoulder seems to be bearing more of the load than it should. I make a note to adjust this later. Then I put my head down and begin. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. With every step... I now feel like I'm leaving another world behind. The steel ropes are creaking and moaning as I bounce my way across the longest and highest swing bridge yet. Nidijan calls out that it's time to stop for lunch. It's not only the bridges that have been steadily creaking, but also my stomach. We pull in through a small stone fence that reminds me of something out of Beatrix Potter and throw our packs down next to a stone cabin perched on the edge of a cliff above the river below. Right, we've just got into Jour Sully. This is the spot we're taking a break for some lunch and couldn't be more beautiful. I'm standing right now looking over a raging torrent of water, a milky blue from that glacial runoff. And we just crossed a swing bridge that's probably 30 metres high right above the, the river and the valley. It's, it's stunning. And yeah, lunch today is going to be apple pie and a Fanta sitting next to some nice flowers. Yeah, life is good. Life is good. Ramro. 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 Ramro 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 
Jindagi. Ramro Jimdagi means good, good something. We're just learning our Nepalese. As much as I love Fanta, at home, it's something I tend to avoid, as I'm not a big fan of sugary drinks. But up here, Fanta is just fine, thank you. After a delicious apple pie, we heave our packs back on and mentally prepare ourselves for the afternoon to come. Nidijan has made no secret of the fact that the second half of today's hike is going to be difficult. A large elevation gain of a few hundred vertical metres over a relatively short distance means it's going to be steep, difficult going. At this point, the trail winds along at river level and is extremely well made and even features a guardrail in places. It's a leisurely stroll for a time, some trekkers even taking the time to stop for a picnic next to the river. However, this stroll starts to tilt up, and we feel for the first real time that lactic acid in the legs. During this period, we're largely walking in an enjoyable silence, just taking in the serenity of the river, the forest, and the mountains above, breathing in that warm, fresh air. During this trek, I'm not only recording audio specifically for this podcast, but I'm also recording 4K video for a companion documentary series, also titled Journey. You can find the link in the show note of this episode. So I'm taking my time, recording audio and a ton of video footage. Nidijan and my trekking partner are ahead of me, but soon enough I catch back up to find a concerning situation has developed. My trekking partner, a young Dutch girl in her 20s, who we have affectionately named Hanky, a shortened version of her real name, is standing aside the trail with Nidijan and appears to be in some distress. This morning when we woke in Fakding, she appeared to have suddenly come down with a bout of the flu. She said she slept poorly, had a runny nose, and just all round looked terrible. She's a tough girl, and had put her head down today and not complained. But it seems that this has taken its toll. Her eyes are full of tears, and I can sense this could be an existential crisis. Suddenly, on day two, we may be faced with the fact that one of us may have to turn back. Not wanting to add further stress to the situation, I move a distance ahead and set up my tripod to take some footage of the upcoming Hillary Swing Bridge. Well, we've just reached the famous Hillary Bridge and I see why it's famous now. I'm not sure exactly how high it is. It looks to be about 70 metres, 100 metres high. Uh, It's just a swing bridge. There's nothing supporting it other than the cables you're standing on. Uh, It's quite dramatically beautiful. The river flows underneath it. You can hear behind me. This is going to be something. Let's go. The Hillary Swing Bridge is 459 feet long 
and 410 feet high. That's about 124 meters. It spans a vast chasm, with the Dude River roaring far below. Like the other swing bridges, it is made up of two steel cables, and hanging from these is a see-through metal walkway. It is prone to swinging dramatically in high winds and bounces and sways as each person walks across. Tibetan prayer flags are fastened along its length and flap wildly in the wind. It really is something that needs to be seen to be believed. As I get my shots, Nidijan and my trekking buddy walk past and up the final steps leading to the bridge. As I arrive at the edge of the chasm, I wait while a caravan of yaks slowly make their way across. The fact that the yaks will happily walk across this swinging ribbon of metal still blows my mind. As the last one walks past me, I pick my moment and step out into the void. Okay, we're about heading out on the Hillary Bridge. Let's get my reaction out here. Oh man. It's basically like bungee jumping. This is incredibly high. Wow. Let's take a look. One part exhilarating and the other part absolutely terrifying. <laughs> to think that dozens of yaks and mules make their way across this bridge, hundreds of them every day. Wow. Oh, that view. <sighs> Take a look that way. <laughs> if you'd like to see the video of me crossing this bridge, you'll find that on the companion post for this episode on my Instagram, RyanWolfNZ. Upon reaching the other side, I find Nidijan and Hanky sitting on a rock shelf next to the sheer drop waiting for me. Amazingly, as we get ready to move out, Nidijan picks up not only his pack, but also Hanky's, one atop the other. The remaining day's trail is a very steep section with approximately a 350 meter elevation gain, and Hanky is not in a good way. At this point, completing the day and continuing the trek is paramount. And as such, Nidijan has decided the only way this will happen is if he can lighten Hanky's load for this difficult section. He's not a big man, but his strength and fortitude will shine through on more than this one occasion. We set off again, the Hillary Bridge and the roar of the river slowly disappearing behind us as we zigzag our way up the mountain 
and into the alpine forest beyond. All right, how far? 400 today. 400 today? 400 Zam, Zam. Zam, Zam. Let's Zam, go. Zam. Let's ship a man. Yeah, yeah. We're above the Hillary Bridge, and this is the first actual difficult part so far of the trek. It's basically, it's pretty much 400 meters elevation straight up to Namche. We're getting there step by step. One thing I didn't know until I got here is that there's a recommendation for your pack to be like 10 to 13 kilos. I didn't read that. I'm used to tramping in New Zealand where we carry food and tents and have heavy packs. So my pack and everything weighs about 20 kilos. And everyone else has these very small packs. And I'm feeling it a bit on this uphill. But at least we're getting fat. <laughs> this point is definitely true. There are two ways you can complete a trek in Nepal. Option one, you carry your own pack. And option two, someone else, a porter, carries it for you. There is no right or wrong way, but only what you consider to be an achievement for you personally. For some, like myself, there is no feeling of accomplishment if I make the trek while someone else carries my pack. But for others, this is not a concern. And of course for some, it is just not physically possible for them to complete a trek of this magnitude carrying their own pack, perhaps due to age or disability. Some would also argue that using a porter gives a local a job. Ultimately, it's a decision to be decided by each individual. But if you do decide to carry your own pack, try to aim for a weight of 12 to 15 kilos max. If you want to find out exactly what I carried in my pack, you'll find all those details in the bonus episode. It's one foot in front of the other, a puff of dust with each step as we wind our way up the mountain. That palpable feeling of exuberance from day one, now a long distant memory for most of those we pass. It's surprisingly warm. I'm in shorts and a t-shirt. As the sun beats down, we're fortunately protected by the canopy of the last forest we'll see on this trek. Eventually, after a couple hours hard toil, we round a bend. And there, before us, is Namche Bazaar, a seemingly impossible village hanging off the side of a mountain. We've just arrived in Namche, and it's beautiful. Beautiful. There's sort of like four-story tea houses here. Stupa, fountain. It's amazing. We're at a height of about 3,400 metres. It's really stunning. You can't really describe it unless you come. Right, now, time to find a tea house. 
Hello. Where the other settlements we've passed through have been small and more basic, Namche is large and immaculate, with many of the colourful lodges up to four storeys high. Tibetan prayer flags flap in the breeze, and local women clean washing in a stream running through the centre, which has been cleverly designed into a series of pools for this purpose, before cascading off a cliff to the valley below. We make our way through the cobbled alleyways of vendors, selling all kinds of locally produced items for tourists. From Everest-themed woolen headwear, to antique stores selling old yak bells. Remember, this village has no vehicles. The only way to get here, other than helicopter, is the two-day trek we've just completed. So it's narrow streets, and foot traffic only. And I absolutely love it. We continue straight on into the centre of the village and climb a short flight of steps to find our tea house, the International Footrest, which features a fantastic balcony overlooking the lower half of Namche Bazaar and the valley and mountains beyond. It truly is spectacular. I swing open the door, eager to get my pack off my back and find a cosy wooden lodge inside, covered wall to ceiling in Everest trail flags, signed by hundreds of climbers and trekkers who have called this place home for a night or two over the years. Nidijan organises our room keys and we turn left down the hall, each step creaking in that homely feel like an old farmhouse. One of the huge benefits of trekking Everest in mid to late November aside from the trail being much quieter, is that the tea houses are far emptier. Aside from one occasion, we were fortunate enough to have a room to ourselves every night. A standard room has two single beds. I've been told time and again that Namche is the last vestige of real civilization on the trek. And I decide to make the most of that by enjoying a cold can of Everest beer and the remaining sunshine on the balcony. Dinner tonight is the local delicacy Dalbat, which is a legend in its own right. I'll explain that later. Then it's straight to bed for an early night. I'm pretty sure I've had a smile on my face for the last 48 hours. <sighs> right, I'm just... Just had dinner, dull butt for dinner, and uh, yeah, just hopped into bed after what has been the first real day in earnest, day two from Fang Ding, Fak Ding to Namche Bazaar. Um, yeah, we uh, you know had some decent elevation gain today. I think I think about eight. 100 meters so yeah so it's two nights in Namche because of acclimatization um you know I've even noticed on my watch my watch um can record blood oxygen levels and um normally my levels would be around 98 to 100 percent if I'm at home at sea level I've never actually noticed it change at all and I did wonder if 
the feature on this watch even worked. But I noticed the first night, last night, when we stayed in Phak Ding, it was down to 95%. First time I've ever seen it a bit lower. And then when we got to Namche, I tested again, and it's actually at 91% now. So, you know, it shows the effect of the altitude on your body. I, you know, I, I feel fine. Don't feel any different. I don't have any signs of anything, and, and it's totally normal. And hopefully tomorrow it'll come back up. Uh, yes, we have a bit of a rest day tomorrow, but we're heading to uh, what's an Everest lookout. Um, so it's just a sort of day pack walk. Uh, take a couple hours up and a couple hours back, and we'll get our first real view of Everest. Uh, so, yeah, looking forward to that. Anyway, right, I'm going to sign off for the night. Uh, this is going to be one of our last nights, or tonight and tomorrow, the last places where we'll get a really decent night's sleep where we don't have to use our sleeping bags. Yeah, so that's a good night from me. Journey is a Brevity Studios production. Written, produced, and narrated by me, Ryan Wolf. You'll find a post with photos and videos dedicated to this episode on my Instagram, RyanWolfNZ, and on our Facebook page, Brevity Studios NZ. You'll find details about this trek in the show notes of every episode. For ad-free listening, bonus episodes, and early release, you can subscribe to our Brevity Plus channel on Apple Plus or Acast Plus. You'll find the details in the show notes of this episode on the next episode of Journey, Everest Base Camp. I was sort of thinking what kind of animal has hair in its, in its feces, and I mean a cat would. Um, and of course the Kumbu region, which is where we are, um, Mount Everest. Oh, oh my God, I've literally just come right around the corner right now. And there is a musk deer standing right in the track, and he is staring right at me.